if you read commentaries and do some serious study about the book of Daniel, one of the things that you will find when you get to chapter 11 is that just about every commentator will say there's no chapter in the Bible like Daniel chapter 11. And of course, to some degree that applies to chapter 12 as well, but not, not quite to the degree that it does in uh, chapter 11. Uh, another quotation that you will often see is uh, there's an Old Testament scholar that if you study the Old Testament uh, in commentaries and things that you'll run into from time to time, his name is Leupold, and he's kind of well-known in uh, Old Testament uh, uh, commentaries. You'll see his name quite often. And uh, he made this statement that is quoted for, uh, in reference to Daniel chapter 11 over and over again, uh, that uh, I don't know how anybody could preach a sermon <coughs> on Daniel chapter 11. And so commentators always quote that when they start talking about Daniel chapter 11. And the reason that it is so unique is because we know that God predicts the future. And it is anytime God does that, uh, even in general terms when he makes a prophecy that comes through, it is incredibly impressive to us when we stop and really think about it. In Daniel chapter 11, it's like God is saying, you haven't seen anything yet, or let me just like make a big point about this prophecy business and how much I control the details of history. Let me, let me just go way over the top uh, and, and uh, give you some prophecy. Because the historical detail in chapter 11 is just, honestly, it's staggering. It, uh, it, it's almost uh, mind-boggling what this chapter actually has in it. Um, let me remind you that in the book of Daniel, we have seen that there are these kingdoms. There's Babylon, and then there's Persia, and then Greece, and Rome, and then Always in the context of Rome, there is Messiah's kingdom or the kingdom of God, the everlasting kingdom that will come in. And so we see these kingdoms all the way through the book of Daniel. Back in chapter 2, there's the great Colossus, the big image, the big statue, whatever that vision is in uh, Daniel 2. And we have, uh, you remember that it's gold, and then it's silver, and then it's bronze. It's bronze, and then it's, uh, and then it's iron, and then there's the stone that smashes the image that is the, the kingdom of Messiah. So in chapter 2, this is, this is Daniel 2, that's the image that we have, and it's these five kingdoms. Now when we come to the later books in chapter 7, we're going to see uh, in Daniel 7, we again see uh, here, uh, we see the lion, and then we see the bear, and then we see uh, the leopard, and then uh, we see the beast, the, the one that really doesn't have an image, doesn't have a description other than just a, this fierce, fierce beast that is just crushing everything with its mouth, its teeth of iron, and then it is trampling underfoot. Uh, what, what it doesn't destroy by, by uh, biting it uh, and crushing it. That way it tramples underfoot and leaves nothing 
uh, in its wake. Then we saw in Daniel 8, we saw Persia and Greece are the subject of that chapter, and we see the ram and the goat. And so we have these two kingdoms, Persia and Greece. And then when we come to Daniel 9, in the 70 weeks of Daniel, the subject, although there's no image or anything, but the subject is uh, the time of Rome and also Messiah's kingdom that's going to happen. And so now we're in Daniel, Daniel 10 through 12, which is one long prophecy. We saw the introduction in Daniel 10 where the veil is pulled back and we see the spiritual world. Can you see this, Deborah? And we see the spiritual world that's hidden to us, unveiled, and, and all the, the things that are going on behind the scene, probably even the more important things that are going on in the world. And so in Daniel 10 and 11, we're going to again have, uh, we're not going to have any reference to Babylon because it's already in the past by this point. But we're going to again have Persia, and we're going to have Greece. And then in chapter 12, at the last part of chapter 11, in chapter 12, we're going to have, um, we're going to have Rome and then Messiah's kingdom. And so we're, go, we're seeing once again in the visions of chapter t 10 through 12, we're seeing again these same world kingdoms and how they're going to unfold in time. And so that's the background for where we are as we come to chapter 11. Because chapter 11 is going to begin by talking about Persia and then about Greece. And I want us to try to look today at verses uh, 1 through 35. I don't know if we'll make it that far, but I'm going to kind of race along and we'll just see uh, how that plays out. But I want, us, I want us to try to understand what the historical detail is that is in these uh, verses. Uh, if for no other reason than just to impress us and impress us and impress us and impress us with how God is foretelling the future. Now, this chapter foretells the future in such precise detail that liberal scholars, that people who don't believe that there could be a such thing as predictive prophecy and foretelling the future, or don't believe that there's any such thing as miracles, don't believe in the supernatural in our world, insist that this, that this chapter could not have been written by Daniel, could not have been written uh, in Daniel's day, that it had to be written hundreds of years later after all these things happened and then chapter 11 could be written because no one could ever produce chapter 11 before the events that actually unfold in sober history. And so this is like a real battleground uh, about, between people who believe in the scriptures, predictive prophecy, and this being literally the word of God and those who would reject such an idea. So, that having said all that, let me make one other comment and then we'll jump into verse 1. The other comment is this. Chapter 11 is, and chapter 12 are going to give us great detail about history, but the history that's going to be told here is only history that has to do with Israel. These chapters are not going to tell us about all, many things that happen on the world scene. 
It is only going to be talking about things that happen relative to God's people, relative to what's going to be going on in the promised land. People that are, things that are going to be relevant to uh, Israel and from Daniel's perspective, his people looking into the future. And so there's going to be a few time gaps. And there's also going to be very important people in the world scene that are not going to be mentioned at all. The people that are going to be mentioned in great detail are mentioned in great detail because they affect the world that Israel lives in. They affect the life and the times of the people there uh, in Israel and in Jerusalem. Now, verse 1 of chapter 11 is going to happen around 5, is a reference to something that, that happens around 539 B.C. And it says this, And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. This is, uh, this is talking about the uh, angel Michael, uh, excuse me, Gabriel. And he is, uh, he's referring, or actually this should be the last verse of the 10th chapter. But he makes reference here to Darius the Mede. I just mentioned this verse because... Uh, to point out to you that Darius to me uh, is there's some debate about who this person is. Some think that it is Cyrus uh, using Darius as a title, or it is, uh, or on the contrary, it may be uh, Darius who was a governor under Cyrus. But it is 539 BC that uh, this person is on the scene of history. Now, when we come to verse 2, let's read verse 2. We're going to be jumping to, to the period that is 530 B.C. to 465 B.C. Verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now, the three kings are going to be Cambyses, Smyrtus and Darius the first, who is called also Darius the Great. And so those are the three kings that are mentioned just by that little phrase, three more kings. And so they're going to be king in like 530 and then 522, just for a very short time, Smyrtus, and then Darius the Great from 521 to 486 B.C. And then it says that there is a fourth king. Now, this fourth king is going to be Xerxes from 486 to 465. Now, why, why do we know about, or what do we know about Xerxes, the king of Persia? What Bible character is going to have a whole lot to do with Xerxes? Esther. And so when we turn to the book of Esther, in fact, let's flip over to Esther, chapter 1, just to look at the first verse or two. And here, Xerxes has the name Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. Did I say that right? Ahasuerus. I hear it all kinds of different ways. I'll say Ahasuerus. In the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the, no, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. 
While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness, his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. Now, the reason I point this out to you is because Bible scholars believe that this feast in the opening verses here of Esther was probably a feast in celebration and, and, and in preparation for the campaign that Persia is going to launch against Greece. And so you notice in our verse back in Daniel 11 that it talks about that he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And that is probably what Esther chapter 1, the first four verses are about. This great meeting where he brings all of his generals in, he brings all the nobles in, and, and it's the purpose is because he's getting ready to launch a campaign against Greece. Now, the reason that is so important and why it's mentioned here and why God includes this in this prophecy is because as he brings the strength of the Persian empire against Greece, he's going to burn Athens to the ground, by the way. He's going to attempt to push down into the southern peninsula, but he's going to be defeated at, uh, I don't know how you pronounce it exactly, but Salamis uh, in southern Greece. And it is near the end of this campaign that the famous battle of Thermopylae happens. Now, you may know some of the stories about about the Mosul. You may remember that there, that at that point, 7,000 Greeks hold up the whole huge Persian army. And then at the end of that week, when the Greeks finally have to retreat, you may remember the story that there are 300 Spartans that hold up the whole Persian army while the other Greek soldiers are able to, to, to retreat. So there's only 7,000 of them to start with. And then as they retreat, you remember the 300 Spartans, there's movies about this, uh, there's books about this. It's one of the most famous things about those 300 Spartans who fight to the death and hold back the whole Persian army. You probably know the story. Well, that happens in this campaign of uh, Xerxes against the Greeks. What is so important about it is this. You'll recall we talked about Alexander the Great earlier. And when Alexander the Great and the Greeks attacked Persia and very swiftly destroyed Persia, you recall that we talked about how they were inflamed against Persia. It was one of those, remember the Alamo situations where the Greeks just, uh, they're smaller in number and weak, technically they should be a weaker army. They, they destroy the Persian army and it is because they are inflamed against Persia. Why are they inflamed? It's because of this verse that's being pointed out to us here in Daniel chapter 11. It is because Xerxes goes up and stirs up the whole Greek world. And all those little countries that were in the area of Greece, they have now, they're going to unite uh, under Philip of Macedon. And then when he dies, Alexander the Great takes his place. And we know that in just a very a uh, few short years, uh, in about 10 years, Alexander is going to conquer the whole known world. Now, in verses 3 and 4, let's read verses 3 and 4. We're turning our attention to Alexander the Great. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven but not to his posterity, 
nor according to the authority which, uh, with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. And so it's not going to go to his children. It's not going to go uh, through some normal uh, channel uh, of, of, uh, of uh, inheritance to, to the next generation. But instead, what we see happen in Alexander's, uh, in Alexander's kingdom is he has four of his generals that rise up and they, uh, they take over uh, his kingdom and his kingdom is divided into four directions. You'll remember Daniel 7, 6. There's a leopard that has four wings. In Daniel 8, 8, uh, the great horn uh, of, uh, is broken and instead four horns come up towards the four winds of heaven. And so we've, we've already seen in chapter 7 and 8 that the kingdom of Alexander is going to be broken into four parts. And it is, again, told us uh, here uh, in these two verses. And so it's going to be Greece. Um, I'm backwards from you. So it's going to be Greece. Modern-day Turkey is going to be the second of those kingdoms. And then just under that, as you turn, come around the Mediterranean, it's going to be Syria and Babylon, which today would be Syria and Iraq. That's going to be one of the kingdoms that we're going to talk about in this chapter. And then down below is Egypt, uh, is the fourth one. So his four generals break his kingdom up into those four groups. It's basically Greece, Turkey, Syria, and Egypt. Now, if you'll note in verse 5, one of the verse, first words is the king of the south. And then if you look down in the next verse, you'll see that there's a reference to the king of the south and the king of the north. And so let me... put a little bit of this on the board here. And so we have the north and we have the south. And this is going to be Syria, Babylon. It is going to be Seleucus and the Seleucid kingdom. Over here it's going to be Egypt and it's going to be the Ptolemies, pronounced Ptolemy, but it starts with the letter P. And those are going to be the two kingdoms that are going to be the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom. Now, why do these two kingdoms matter? The kingdom of the Ptolemies, the kingdom of uh, Seleucus. Well, it's because here's Syria and here's Egypt. And what is right in the middle? It is Israel. And so these two empires are going to be back and forth, back and forth at each other uh, throughout the next hundreds of years. And so that's what we're going to see uh, as we go through these verses in chapter 11. So let's look at verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule and his authority shall be great authority. And so what we have here is we have a reference to Ptolemy. The first. That's the, going to be this strong king. And then the, but this one that is going to be from among his group of people is going to be one of his generals is going to become 
in his own right powerful because he's going to go up to the area of Syria and he's going to be Seleucus the first. And so that is what verse 5 is talking about when it says that the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes, that is Seleucus, shall be stronger than he and shall rule. His authority shall be a great authority and he is, because he's going to come and he's going to rule this kingdom. Verse 6. After some years they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm and he and his arm shall not endure but she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And so what we have now is we have in verse 6, Ptolemy I has died. And so there's a new king. And surprise, surprise, he's Ptolemy II. Now Ptolemy II has a daughter. And the daughter is, and I'm going to put D, is sometimes it's, it's, it's uh, listed as Bernice, but it actually has another E in it. It's more like Berenice. And so that is going to be his daughter. Now what he is going to do that our verse tells us is he's going to make an alliance. And the alliance that he's going to make is he is going to, uh, he is going to marry his daughter, to the king of the north. Now the king of the north at this time is Antiochus the first. And so Seleucus has died. Antiochus uh, the first is now uh, Antiochus the uh, first actually reigns for a short time and then Antiochus the second actually comes on the scene. And it is Antiochus the second and Ptolemy the second that are in view in this alliance. And so down here we have him marry Berenice to make this alliance. But there's an interesting little problem here. Antiochus II is already married. He is married to Laodicea. In order to make this alliance, what he does is he divorces Laodicea. And he sends her to Asia Minor, to actually to Ephesus. And he marries Berenice, and they have, a, they have a son. And then a couple of things happen. What do you think, by the way, that Laodicea thinks about this? Do you think she's quietly just gone away to Ephesus? That wouldn't be the case. What she is actually going to do is she is going to be conniving because she wants to be queen again. And her father is going to die. This is Berenice's father is going to die. And after he does, Laodicea convinces her former husband to come back to her and to come actually to Asia Minor, to where Ephesus is, and to, uh, to, again, be with her there. And let me just read my note here so I'll say it exactly how it happened. Laodicea convinces Antiochus II to come live with her in Ephesus. 
So he leaves Berenice and her son, and Laodice takes the occasion to poison Antiochus II, while her partisans at Antioch murder Berenice and her infant son. And so this happens. Gone, gone, and the son, who would have been an heir, gone. And guess who is now king, queen? It is Laodicea the first. And so that is the alliance that we have in Daniel eleven six. That is what happens. And so when it says that Berenice, who is going to be sent down, who is going to be sent in this alliance to in marriage, that she loses her strength, and then the husband that she marries. He loses his uh, strength. Uh, th that happens quite literally. And so this is what happens uh, in uh, verse 6. Now, we talk about American politics <laughs> and how wild it is <laughs> and can be. I would suggest to you that uh, there's nothing new uh, under the political sun uh, that hasn't happened uh, before and uh, there's nothing new about what we see. Now let's uh, look at verse 7. Verse 7. And from a branch from her roots one shall arise in his place, and he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. So what's going to happen now is, uh, here in verse 7, you remember Ptolemy II died. We kind of opened the door for Berenice to be dealt with. Well, of course, her brother is going to be king in Egypt after her father dies. And what verse 7 is about is a branch from her roots, that is her brother, is going to start a campaign north to attack the Seleucus Empire to get his revenge for the murder of Berenice. And so now we have Ptolemy III attacking over to the north, and that's what verse 7 uh, has to deal with. And he is going to be quite successful. He's going to capture Antioch, an important city, and he's going to uh, take much territory away from the northern kingdom. Verse 8, he shall also carry off to Egypt their gods and their metal images and their precious ves vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall re refrain from attacking the king of the north. But the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. This is, this is talking about that Ptolemy III, when he goes up into what we were talking about in the previous verse, when he goes up there and has real success against the king of the north, uh, he does something that is being, he writes a wrong that has been in place for a long time. You remember the three kings that I mentioned from Persia? One of those very first ones was, ones was Cambyses. Well, when he was down in Egypt all those years ago, hundreds of years ago, he took many treasures and much wealth from Egypt and took it back up to where now the king of the north is in these hundreds of years later. Well, while he's there in verse uh, 8 and 9, uh, Ptolemy III gets it back. And he brings, brings the riches of Egypt that have been there for uh, over 100 years, he brings it back down uh, to uh, Egypt again. And that's what uh, verses 8 and 9 uh, are about. 
Verse 10. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. And what's going to happen is that his sons, that is, these are the sons of Seleucus II, they're going to be more successful than their father. So we just had Ptolemy go up there and really do serious business to the north. And now Seleucus II, uh, who he became king after this. He just, there's some skip times here. And every detail is not in there. But Seleucus II has become king. And he, he, just, he just never can accomplish anything uh, as he tries to do things uh, relative to, uh, to Egypt and what's going on down there. But his sons are going to be more successful. And uh, it is going to be uh, actually, um, it is going to actually be uh, his son Seleucus III, who's going to come onto the scene right after him, that is going to, uh, again, uh, be a great military force and cause great trouble uh, down uh, in, in Egypt. In fact, Ptolemy IV is by that time going to be king when Seleucus III uh, has great success going down into Egypt. And that's what uh, is being referred to here. Uh, in verse 10. Let's read verse 11 and 12. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted. And he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. When it says that it will be given into his hand, Antiochus III uh, was defeated by Ptolemy IV in the Battle of Raphia in 218 B.C. Antiochus III uh, had, to, had to give up Palestine and Phoenicia to Egypt, and so there's great success uh, by Ptolemy IV. When it says he shall not prevail, right when it looks like Ptolemy IV is going to like really, really defeat uh, Antiochus III in the north, he escapes. And he doesn't capture him. And Antiochus III is able to later make uh, a comeback. In fact, it's going to be 15 years later. And in the next verse, verse 13 in our text, that Antiochus is going to be able to become strong enough to once again, now the north going to the south. And so what we're seeing is this. And who's in the middle? And what's happening every one of the times these armies are passing through? Trouble for Israel. That's the point of all the prophetic detail here. Now, in verse 13 we read, For the king of the north shall, rise, shall again rise, uh, raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come with a great army and abundant supplies. And this is talking about Antiochus III returning to take up arms once more against Egypt, taking Gaza in 201 B.C. So this is verse 13. Verse 14. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south. And the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. But they shall fail. Now what verse 14 is talking about is in 2000. Excuse me. In 201. Not 2001. But in the year 201. There is a pro-Seleucid party that rises up in Jerusalem. So there they favor the north and they're against the Egyptians. 
But Egypt sends a general by the name of Scopus up there to Jerusalem who clears that area out and pushes all the way to the base of Mount Hermon, which is in the modern Golan Heights. And so uh, that uprising there in Jerusalem is very quickly put down, verse 14. Verse 15. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. What happens here is Antiochus III counterattacks. The general Scopus you know, had just gone up there to Jerusalem and had dealt with that pro-Seleucid group of Jews. And now Antiochus counterattacks. He pushes Scopus down to the city of Sidon, which is the city that's referred to here, to here in our verse. And uh, there he uh, eventually will lose the city uh, to Antiochus III. That's verse 15. Verse 16. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. Antiochus III is going to move all the way down through Palestine, taking Jerusalem into year 198. And he's going to occupy all of Palestine as far as Gaza. Again, back and forth, back and forth through Israel. Verse 17. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. And he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. And so here we're going to have another arrangement. There's going to be a marriage arrangement. And this time, it, instead of being a, the, the woman from the south going up and marrying into the northern kingdom, it's going to be a woman from the northern kingdom going down and marrying into the southern kingdom. Anybody want to guess what the name of this woman who's going to marry into the Egypt, Egyptian royal family is going to be? We all know who it is. <laughs> it's going to be Cleopatra. It's going to be the first of several Cleopatras. And so Cleopatra, who is a, a, a Greek woman, is going to go down and marry Ptolemy V. And by the way, Ptolemy V is only nine years old when this happens. And our verse tells us something very interesting. It says, he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. And so when, when he gives his daughter to marry, uh, in Mary Ptolemy V, the idea of Antiochus III is, is that she's going to go down there and create all kinds of good things uh, for the northern kingdom. She's going to go down there and have a lot of influence, and it's going to help the northern kingdom through this marriage. Our verse says that it's not going to stand or be to his advantage. And it is because when Cleopatra goes down to Egypt, Cleopatra falls in love with Egypt. And starting with her, Cleopatra I, she's going to be the first of a number of queens of Egypt that are going to be Cleopatra in the next hundreds, a few hundred years. The most famous and the last, and the one that we normally think of when we think of Cleopatra, <clears throat> excuse me, is actually Cleopatra the seventh. So this is the first Cleopatra. 
but it's actually Cleopatra the seventh, who is the very last one. She is the one that has a child with, with uh, Julius Caesar and who marries Mark Anthony and who Shakespeare writes about and many, many others in movies and stories and books and all kinds of things. The Cleopatra that we know is actually Cleopatra the seventh. But the first one is this Cleopatra that we have here in this chapter. And she will become actually Cleopatra the first because her husband uh, will die before she dies. And she actually will be queen uh, for a time until her son, uh, who was going to be Ptolemy the uh, sixth, uh, becomes king uh, a few years later. So she actually is going to be the first true queen of Egypt, Cleopatra. Verse 18. After he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his own insolence back upon him. Now what happens is Antiochus III goes over towards the direction of Greece and attacks, and uh, he is actually asked to help several of the nations there to attack against the Macedonians. But there's a new power that's going to come on the world scene and get involved, and it is the Romans. And the Romans throw their weight against Antiochus III, and he is forced to withdraw from Greece. And that's what our verse is talking about. This is 192 B.C. And when it says that he is going to, there's going to be an input to his insolence, uh, that's what it's talking about. He goes over there, but uh, he has all of his plans thwarted as the Romans enter the scene. Verse 19, then he, is, he shall turn his back, he shall turn his face back towards the fortress of his own land, that he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. It is interesting that during this period that the great general Hannibal, you remember the name Hannibal, actually is going to be an advisor to Antiochus III. One of the great Romans, Roman generals is going to follow Antiochus as he retreats. He's going to meet him in battle, and he's going to defeat him several times. Antiochus III will give up a good portion of his land. But one of the things that's going to happen to Antiochus III is that two of his sons, Seleucus IV and Antiochus IV, are going to be affected by all this because Seleucus IV is going to become king of the north, but Antiochus IV is going to be taken to Rome as a prisoner of war. Now, Antiochus IV is where all this is headed. He is the little horn from Daniel chapter 8. He is the one that, starting uh, in verse 21, uh, this passage is going to be about. But he is going to actually be taken as a prisoner of war and taken uh, to Rome. Now, verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Now what happens is Antiochus III was, was killed and Seleucus IV, his son, becomes king. And one of the things that Seleucus IV starts to do is he goes and tries to pillage and steal wealth from anywhere he can because when the Romans defeated them, they put tribute on them. And it's all that they can do in this northern kingdom that year after year to gather together enough money to pay 
their tribute. And so they find out, and this is what our verse is about, they find out by a, a traitorous Jew that there is great wealth hidden in the temple at Jerusalem. And so a tax collector named Heliodorus comes into Jerusalem. He comes in as a friend to the Jews. He gets access to information. He gets ac- access to the temple. Uh, he, he, he portrays himself as being a friend. And then he attempts to seize all the wealth that's in the temple. And it's recorded to us in 2 Maccabees chapter 3. I'm not going to read it. But according to that passage, when he enters the temple to actually seize all of this treasure and wealth, he has a vision that scares he and his men to death. And they stop. And they don't actually seize the treasure in Jerusalem. And so uh, they're thwarted by uh, an apparent miracle that happens there. Now, our verse also says that he, speaking of Seleucus IV, will be broken neither in anger nor in battle. That is because a few years later, he is going to be poisoned. And he's not going to be destroyed in battle, but instead uh, through intrigue. Now, when we come to verse 21, we are turning our attention to Antiochus IV, who is going to be Antiochus Epiphanes. He is going to be the great picture of Antichrist, the, the, the symbol the, uh, of Antichrist, the, uh, the one that will be uh, later used uh, as a symbol for him as the scriptures speak about this in the future. And beginning in verse 21 through verse 35, it is going to be about the career of Antiochus IV. I'm going to just start, because we've got just a few minutes, and I'm not going to run real late to try to finish this. We'll do it. Uh, we'll finish it up real quickly next time. But just very quickly, verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person. This is going to be Antiochus Epiphanes. To whom royal majesty has not been given, he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And so the way that uh, he, he uh, seizes power is through flattery and manipulation. And he takes to himself the title Antiochus Epiphanes Theos. Antiochus, the manifest God, or God manifest. And that is a title that he takes to himself as he blasphemes against God. Verse 22. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. Ptolemy the seventh is going to come of age and he's going to attempt to regain the lands of, the, of Palestine from the Seleucids, but he is going to be eventually defeated and captured by Antiochus IV. And so uh, there's not going to be success against him as he, uh, as he is attacked from the outside. When it talks about even the prince of the covenant, the uh, uh, scholars believe that that's a reference to the fact that Antiochus kills the high priest Onias. He murders him. And uh, the high priest was the de facto prince of the theocracy because there's no king in Israel. And so the high priest was viewed as the prince, excuse me, <clears throat> of the theocracy uh, there in Israel. That is who uh, is believed to be referred to here in verse 22. Verse 23. 
And from the time that an, that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he, he shall become strong with a small people. And what we see over and over again is we see Antiochus as he uh, uses intrigue and deceit to grow, to become more and more powerful. Uh, he does this uh, in reference to uh, uh, Ptolemy VII uh, as well. And I'm not going to get into the details because we don't have, we don't have time. I want to kind of rush along. Verse 24. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers or his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Now, what it's talking about here is his fathers always plundered and accumulated wealth for their personal wealth. But what Antiochus IV does is he takes the plunder and the wealth that he accumulates and he bribes people and he pays off people and he gets people to be on his side and gets people to be loyal to him and gets people to back him and provide him things. And he makes all these alliances and he contrives all these arrangements uh, through using uh, his wealth uh, that he accumulates. And so that's what our verse there is talking about in verse 24. Verse 25. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceeding great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for plot shall be devised against him. Now what happens here is Ptolemy the seventh eventually works out an arrangement uh, with his brother where they split the kingdom of Egypt and they unite uh, themselves against Antiochus IV. And Antiochus IV comes down there to Egypt and he is intent on laying siege to the city of Alexandria. Verse 26. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away and many shall, shall fall down slain. Ptolemy the sixth, excuse me, Ptolemy the seventh has supposedly been under the protection of Antiochus. In other words, he eats his food. He was uh, supposed to be his friend. But now he finds himself at odds with Antiochus. Verse 170. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And here we see Ptolemy the seventh and his brother. They seem to come to an agreement, but there are intrigues and deceits going on, and in a very short time, uh, all that falls apart. I wanted to get down to uh, just at least verse 30 real quickly. Let me just press on. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. What we have here is Antiochus IV returned from Egypt with great plunder. Several years earlier, he had accepted a bribe from the Jewish priest named Jason to remove the current high priest and put Jason in his place. Jason was eventually removed because another priest, Menelaus, offered a still higher bribe. And while the Jewish representatives came before the king with their complaints about all this, Antiochus IV just executed all those that came to him and complained about what he had done. Verse 29, At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall be done, but it shall not be this time as it was before. Antiochus force again invades Egypt. He traps the two uh, kings down there in the city of Alexandria. 
But then verse 30 happens, and this is very interesting. For ships of Kittim shall come against them. Let me pause there. Ships of Kittim are the Roman navy. So the Romans have come down. And he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged, and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. But this is what happens. It looks like that Antiochus Epiphanes is really going to conquer Egypt this time. That's what it looks like. But our verse tells us, previous verse, that it's not going to be this time like it was before. Rome enters the picture, and the Romans make an ultimatum. There's a guy named Gaius, Papalius, Linnaeus, who was a representative of Rome. He meets with Antiochus IV, and he orders him out of Egypt on the authority of Rome. And then this man does something very interesting. We know that Antiochus Epiphanes is conniving and tricky and sneaky, and he is trying to avoid giving a direct answer. This man takes a stick. He draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus. And he says, you cannot cross this line until you give me an answer. And today we have what saying? A line in the sand. And this is where the saying, a line in the sand, comes from. It comes from Antiochus Epiphanes and his confrontation with the Romans down in Alexandria in Egypt. And so that's where we get that saying from. Okay. I'm going to stop right here because this is a good stopping point. And the next thing that's going to happen is he's going to turn his anger from this event towards where? Who is he going to take this out on? The Romans have treated him nastily. He's embarrassed. He has his tail tucked between his legs, but he still has a mighty army. And what is he going to do? He's heading for He's heading north, and that's what we're going to see in our next verses. Okay, let's, uh, let's just stop. Anybody have any questions or comments? I know this is just bam, 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 but I think the reason this chapter is even here is to impress, I mean, the historical detail is just ridiculous. I mean, all of these details that have happened in history that are just, you know, the oddest things, and who could have ever uh, even imagined such things are given to us in these uh, Verses of prophecy in great detail, God putting himself, I would suggest to you, on display and affirming to us over and over again uh, who it is that rules in the world. I would also suggest this to you. I would suggest that Michael and the angels that are involved in all of these struggles are very much at work in all of the hearts and directions that these people are taking and what we're seeing in these verses as well. Let's close with the word of prayer.